Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. But again, when you hear people talk in such disparaging tones that everything is broken, that nothing is possible, you need to ask yourself, is that right? And when you look around, the answer is no, that there are these examples where things do go right, where people work together and create a neighborhood or a community for themselves in which they can be prosperous and build better lives. And that's really what the Democratic Project is all about. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Thank you once again for listening to Democracy Paradox, a podcast on democracy, democratization, and world affairs. Each week, we're talking about big picture insights to better understand political issues and events. These are complex ideas that might even be unfamiliar, so I always provide a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com. Now, today's guest is Evan Lieberman. Evan is a professor of political science and contemporary Africa at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the director of the MIT Global Diversity Lab. He also has a forthcoming book called Until We Have Won Our Liberty, South Africa After Apartheid. Regular listeners will remember that this is going to be the second of my episodes on Democracy in Hard Places. It's a series of episodes based on the forthcoming volume edited by Scott Manwaring and Tariq Massoud. Now, Evan Lieberman does not have a chapter in this book, but South Africa does face numerous challenges due to the legacy of apartheid. At the same time, though, it has overcome those challenges through its commitment to democracy. Nevertheless, a lot of the conversations on South Africa continue to focus on the ongoing challenges rather than acknowledge its accomplishments. So Evan's recent article, South Africa's Resilient Democracy, co-authored with Rorasang Lekalake in the Journal of Democracy, felt like a breath of fresh air. You'll find Evan does not ignore or deny the challenges South Africa continues to face. It's just, he also doesn't deny South Africa's accomplishments either. Like always, you can send any questions or comments to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. Here is my conversation with Evan Lieberman. Evan Lieberman, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Well, Evan, I want to start out here with the story because I feel like your book very much involves lots of different types of stories. But I want to start out with the character that all of us know well, or at least we know the name, and that is Nelson Mandela. But I feel like fewer and fewer of us actually know his story. We just know the name. So why don't we start there? Can you offer a brief profile of Nelson Mandela, because I think he offers a bridge between the apartheid era into South Africa's democratic era. Well, 
Nelson Mandela is certainly one of the most, if not the most inspiring figures from our lifetimes. And he was the first president of the multiracial South Africa, which is pretty amazing feat when you think this was this country that for hundreds of years was ruled by white people over a majority black population. And the fact that he was elected and became president was this amazing feat that was the product of his long struggle. And he was planning to become a a lawyer, wasn't necessarily a political activist right off the bat, but became very much involved in ANC politics, which was the African National Congress, which long before it became a political party was a resistance organization that was formed as early as 1912. But he became a part of that, became a leader of it. And as he became increasingly interested in the white supremacist government and how to overthrow it through politics, he used his legal prowess and his charisma to help organize people starting in the 1950s. And he eventually decided that this kind of peaceful, nonviolent struggle was just not going to change the minds of this apartheid regime. And apartheid was this government that meant, you know, apartheid means apartness. And it was basically an idea of keeping white and black people apart. And he engaged in the violent struggle that he felt was ultimately necessary in order to change this profoundly unjust system of government. And then he wound up in jail as a result of his actions in trying to overthrow the government. And he spent, as we know, 27 years in jail. But what was so remarkable about him was that, you know, throughout that time, he really thought about ways in which he could help the ANC build a new kind of government in Southern Africa. He didn't really speak about revenge or trying to, you know, exact a toll on his oppressors, but thought about ways of negotiating a new settlement. But he was tough. You know, today there's a lot of talk about whether or not he was tough enough. And, you know, even at the time, there were a lot of his Black African comrades who didn't like the fact that he was willing to negotiate behind the scenes with the white government. But he did. And he really decided to engage in a way that would allow white South Africans to imagine themselves having a potential future in a country that they, you know, came to recognize, I think, in large part, had governed unjustly. You know, majority of whites came to realize, you know, we can't do this anymore to govern over a black population and the dispensation that we've left here is unfair and unjust. But meanwhile, I think they were nervous about what the future would bring. And he remarkably you know, managed ways to assure them that they could figure out a way to all live together under democratic rule. And although not a lot of white South Africans voted for Mandela's ANC party, I think by and large, they accepted that he would probably be the best black leader. And, and by far, the majority of black South Africans voted for him. And so he provided this great bridge of a transition from white South Africa to a multiracial South Africa. So Evan, in political science, we typically look for like conditions or different events or different variables that really kind of determine the outcomes of the way how the world will evolve. We think of the reasons for democratization, and they always involve things like economic growth or something else. 
It's interesting because when we think about South Africa, I'm not sure that I can imagine South Africa as a democracy without Nelson Mandela. We don't oftentimes link individual people to the reason why we end up having the outcomes that we do in political science. So I just want to take a moment and just kind of ask you point blank, like, would South Africa be a democracy without Nelson Mandela? You know, I think actually the answer is yes. I mean, Nelson Mandela played a huge role. I don't know that South Africa would be the democracy that it is without Nelson Mandela. But first of all, a lot of the conditions that led to the democratization of South Africa, you know, were present in a lot of other countries that underwent democratic you know, regime changes. You know, one of those, of course, was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And in many ways, South Africa is part of the third wave of democratization that took place in countries around the world, including in many African countries. Even Namibia, the neighbor to South Africa, which in many ways was an offshoot of South Africa, had a democratic transition a little bit earlier and is still very much a democracy. And things like low economic growth and protest, the ingredients were there for some kind of transition. You know, moreover, this incredibly repressive and unjust regime of the apartheid government had the ultimately positive effect of generating a really strong and robust and committed resistance movement over a very long period of time. So I think that in many ways, the ANC had a very deep bench with a lot of thoughtful, intelligent, and skilled politicians. I don't know that any of them were as skilled, perhaps as open to this idea of a multiracial democracy as Mandela was, but he was not a complete outlier in his thinking and strategies compared to the mainstream of the ANC. And in many ways, his actions very much followed from the blueprints of what the ANC wanted to do. So I think others might disagree. Um, and I've written about the importance of Mandela and certainly around the time when he eventually passed away. But would South Africa be a democracy today without him? We'll never know. But my answer would be yes. Do you feel like his legacy still looms large, though, in South Africa? Because it's been 20 some odd years since he was president. How does the initial presidency of Nelson Mandela still shape democracy today in South Africa? Well, I think it shapes it in lots of ways in that to a large degree, he came into power talking about basic service delivery. A better life for all was the campaign pledge of the ANC during that first term of office. And I think that focus on basic service delivery is still very much there. He also continued very much along the lines of what the ANC had been promoting in the decades since they published this Freedom Charter, which was a declaration of the goals and aspirations of the ANC of what a better and brighter future in South Africa might look like. And that was in 1955. But that very much shaped the initial constitution of South Africa and the philosophy around Mandela's first term and with an orientation towards human rights, and I think towards relatively fair and even treatment of all people. Now, I think lots of people would disagree about whether that's happening in practice, but I think that those ideals were very much instilled during that presidency that he oversaw, you know, including 
the generous way in which he famously reached out to the Springbok team, that rugby World Cup team that would, you know, kind of miraculously prove victorious when South Africa hosted the Rugby World Cup and as epitomized in the Matt Damon starring film Invictus, that idea that we could all be in this together. I think that sentiment has faded somewhat for lots of reasons, including the fact that all transitions give way to the realities of politics and you know more petty concerns. But I think that those goals and aspirations remain a part of the South African ethos. And I think that Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, the current president who was close to Mandela, echoes those sentiments. I like how you focused on the role of ideals within South African democracy, because I think that that plays an enormous role both in South Africa, but also in terms of the way that we think about it outside of South Africa, the way that we see this as a miraculous case because of how terrible things were under apartheid for, I don't even want to say minorities, we'll say marginalized groups, because Black Africans are the vast majority within the country. In the book, You emphasize the importance of South African democracy for how we think about democracy in the world. You write, whether South Africa is a case of success or failure has enormous implications for how we think about the promise of democracy more generally. Evan, can you open up a little bit about what some of the implications are for democracy based on South Africa's experience? Sure. I do think South Africa is a very high leverage case in a lot of ways. Um, And what I mean by whether we think of it as a success or failure is important is because podcasts like yours and discussions that lots of us have, and we're thinking about the world today in terms of the political systems that people have chosen or that have been chosen for them and why they come about and what the consequences are. Well, you know, that kind of database that's in our head is limited by a finite number of cases some of which haven't changed very much over a long period of time. So there's a bunch out there that have changed and they necessarily affect our views about what's possible. So first in the African context, right, which is the world region that I study most. Traditionally, Africa hasn't been a particularly fertile ground for building lasting and robust multi-party democracies. You know, several countries underwent democratic transitions in the 1990s. Not all of them have gone well. Some countries like Zambia or Malawi or Nigeria or Kenya, they're not completely collapsed democracies, but they've had pretty bumpy roads. If we were to look at South Africa and assess from the record that this was a failed case, I think that would understandably contribute to a fair bit of pessimism about the prospects for democracy in Africa. We'd say, wow, if South Africa with leaders like Nelson Mandela fails to be democratic, I don't know what that means for the rest of the continent. But again, my reading is much more hopeful because I view it as I write in the book that ultimately I think it's a successful case. That doesn't mean that democracy is going to be successful everywhere in Africa, but it reminds us that there isn't something about this region that makes it inimical to being successful in selecting leaders through democratic means and having an open civil society and human rights. And there are other countries, particularly in that region, which have been quite successful. But since they're much smaller, when we're talking about Botswana or Namibia, South Africa being this important case, I think really can contribute to our imagination that there's a democratic future that's possible, not guaranteed, but that's possible in Africa. You know, secondly, I think South Africa tells us a lot about the possibility of building democracy in what I would call an essentially divided multiracial society. 
And as I mentioned in the book, in some ways, I think about it a bit like Israel, where there are deep existential questions of whether two peoples who are so divided can ever manage to figure out a solution, a political solution in which they can live together, select leaders together, decide on public policies together. You know, at about the same time, Israel had a similar moment when two leaders who would get Nobel Peace Prizes were trying to work out a solution to have, you know, one state, just like South Africa was doing. But the Israeli process got derailed by an assassination and by antagonisms. But, you know, in some ways it could have been. And Israel and Palestine continue to face an existential crisis about what they're going to do with this you know, stalemate and continued conflict where South Africa really got over this challenge. And again, I think that you know, for many South Africans, as I write about in my book, they are frustrated or unhappy about various outcomes that they see. But if we look at the big picture, I think that South African democracy has been quite successful in solving what really seemed like an unsolvable existential crisis. I think symbolically, it also mirrors the experience that we've had within the United States. It's not a perfect comparison, but apartheid obviously has a lot of similarities to the Jim Crow era within the American South. And it helps us look at another example that's been able to overcome some of just the horrible discrimination and even more so than discrimination that happened within South Africa and see that they've been able to have somewhat of a democracy, even in a nation that's developing economically, and realize that in a developed economy like ourselves, that should have more advantages that when we see dark moments in our own democracy, we can look at a country like South Africa and say that, hey, we should be able to overcome some of those obstacles. And even looking beyond the United States and South Africa, I would imagine that the rest of the world we're finding is much more diverse than what we initially always assumed. People usually think of things as nation states, but it seems that most countries these days have multiple populations, either historically, like a country like Myanmar, who has multiple ethnicities within it, or a country like France that through immigration has developed multiple ethnicities, religions, backgrounds. And as we try to make these diverse democracies succeed, we want to believe in a case like South Africa that's in a distant place that has a tragic history in its past, but has had a miraculous transition to believe that that's going to be able to succeed into the future. And I think that there's no other symbolism other than the idea of the rainbow nation that really kind of brings out that sense of hope. Can you tell us a little bit about what that ideal is, this ideal that's called the rainbow nation? Sure. Let me start by saying that I completely agree with the analysis you just provided because We've all traditionally thought that the world was carved up into these nation states. And when a country wasn't a nation state, that was an aberration or a problem that states were for a particular kind of homogeneous people. Maybe the United States was a little bit of an exception as this place we might call, you know, a, a civic nation or a melting pot. There was this American exceptionalism. But through migration and movement, there's just so much change everywhere in the world, you know, that idea of homogeneity of race or ethnicity or creed is just not going to be the organizing principle of societies anymore. 
Um, it doesn't mean that culture isn't important. It doesn't mean that legacies of oppression aren't meaningful to people and their identities and wanting to be recognized for those histories. But we're clearly living in an age and an era in which politics and government need to recognize that communities are flexible, changing, and that we need to figure out ways to solve problems together all the way up to the global level for problems like climate change. But getting back to the Rainbow Nation, this was this idea that was advanced by the now late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, trying to think of a way, how do we conceive of a notion of nationhood that transcends the idea of a racially defined community? Because South Africa under apartheid was a white nation. In fact, that itself was an invention because prior to that, you know, if you look at the early part of the 20th century, so-called white South Africans were bitterly divided between Afrikaners and British that they went to a brutal civil war and they described themselves as different race groups. So they forged this thing called a white nation, which at the time was a, a miraculous coming together of peoples. Then we began to take for granted that whiteness as different from you know, black Africanness was something that we should take as a given. And the idea of a rainbow nation is upsetting that once again, that all these different people under apartheid in South Africa, there are four racially classified groups, whites, colors, or, which is kind of a mixed race, but it's a slightly more complicated category than that. Indians or Asians is a third category. And then Black Africans, among which Black Africans are themselves quite diverse in terms of different language groups and backgrounds. And so the idea was you know, look, we are all these different kinds of people all living in one part of this earth and we have some shared history and we need to figure out a way to come together to imagine ourselves as being united in our diversity and trying to have our institutions and practices to reflect this. So when we think about the Rainbow Nation, and I want to separate that from just the idea of African democracy for a moment, because African democracy can succeed even if the ideal for the rainbow nation evolves or is even set aside. So this ideal, the rainbow nation, do you feel that it's succeeded or do you feel like it's come up short? I think the ideal is a good one. You know, some could say it's a little hokey. What's the solution to diversity? Oh, you know, we're, we'll be a rainbow or we'll be a melting pot. But I think it's a reasonable one. I challenge other scholars and intellectuals who traditionally have been the ones to try to advance such ideas in various countries around the world. How do you think about Americanness or Frenchness or Brazilianness? It's an idea. So I haven't seen something that squares the circle much better. So I think as an idea, it still offers promise. I think that as an ideal, it's still in the heads of people in South Africa when you ask them about it. I think most will say, no, we haven't yet attained this ideal. And as I write in the book on surveys, a large share of South Africans don't think that this is going to be possible for some time. But very few think that it's out of the question. Very few think that this ideal of a rainbow nation is just off the table, that they can't do it. And while I think lots of South Africans are skeptical or cynical about it because what they see in their everyday lives is a continuing degree of mistrust across racial and ethnic divides, 
They see the realities of inequality across the racial divide and various challenges that their society faces. They haven't you know, solved everything. But it's still less than 30 years since the 1994 election of Nelson Mandela. And I guess I would say that what's been successful is that that ideal has stuck. If you look on TV and the newscasters, they always make sure to promote an image of people from different race groups and backgrounds. If you look at corporate boardrooms or if you look at schools in urban areas where there is a diversity of people, all of these institutions feel that it is critically important to put forward an image of a diverse and integrated workforce or school force. Now, some of us may say that's hypocritical or it's cynical because we know that a lot of American institutions do that as well. And those images do not accord with some of the realities of what's going on in those institutions. And I understand that concern. But I guess my response to that would be in these official documents or in these choices about how to represent their organizations, it's clear that this is an important value. And we're all trying to be the best people we can be. And the question is along what dimension. And I think the idea of an integrated, multiracial, multi-ethnic rainbow nation is clearly still that ideal. So to me, that is a measure of success, just like in the case of the United States, where rates of intermarriage are still low. We still see you know, a fair bit of de facto segregation, all sorts of inequality, you know, the unthinkable extent of violence against people of color and incarceration. So, I mean, the problems are so large in our society as they are in South Africa's. But I think that these values are still there of how do we try to integrate peoples. And to my mind, in South Africa, they're moving more quickly than we've moved in the United States. So you already kind of mentioned it, Evan, that it's not just racism that's an issue, it's inequality. And the two are tied together within South Africa, just like how they're tied together within the United States. It's difficult to untangle economic issues from race issues. But I want to touch on the economy and the way that South Africans feel that they've actually made progress in their actual lives. In the book you write, the compromise solution was to combine a largely free market system while actively promoting Black economic empowerment. So can you help us understand how democratization, how the end of apartheid has changed the South African economy? So first of all, I think it's important to point out that because so many South Africans rightly highlight, boy, economic growth is not what we hoped it would be. And that's particularly true over the past you know, several years. It's been really lackluster. But you know, the waning days of apartheid had consistent stalled and negative economic growth. And economic growth in South Africa was pretty solid for the first 15 years after apartheid. It wasn't amazing, but there were suddenly you know, real opportunities for work and management positions that were not racially constrained, and the economy could focus on productive activities. And a very large Black middle class developed. So in some ways, people take it for granted today. But as an outsider who's been coming back and forth to South Africa over the past 30 years, to go look at malls and restaurants and various parts of the country, which may demand various levels of spending power, you know, suddenly you see 
great deal of diversity. You see this large black middle class, and that is a big change. You know, on the other hand, democratization, the election of leaders through votes and choice doesn't mean you always get great leaders. You know, the South Africans took on a really lousy president in 2009 um, in the form of Jacob Zuma. And and I say lousy in in terms of the fact that here is someone who oversaw and seems to have been the principal actor in a number of highly corrupt and thoughtless schemes. And that coincided with the global economic meltdown. And if you were going to isolate what led to a real decline in South Africa's economy during this democratic era, those two really important factors ended up being quite crushing for economic growth. And overall, I think inequality has remained staggeringly high in South Africa. If one would have hoped for and even predicted that a democratic dispensation in which the majority of the population is poor would figure out a way to affect policies and practices that would really shrink the gap between the haves and the have-nots, by some measures, South Africa hasn't been particularly successful. The measures of income inequality are still just profoundly high. Now, again, that's true the world over. Countries like the United States, other advanced countries, other middle-income countries have become more unequal over this time. And the reasons for that are you know, way beyond the scope of this book and, and my focus on South Africa. But on the other hand, I think what has happened in South Africa, which is a result of a democratic government, is a result of the end of apartheid, is so many more social policies which give cash grants, which give housing, which give basic services to the poor majority. They haven't managed to bring these out to every single person, right? So they've not reached universal coverage. And those sorts of statistics don't figure when you're looking at income inequality because they're not considered income. But they have really softened the blow of profound income inequality. So I think what we have as a result of the end of apartheid and democratization is a somewhat more just economy, but also a recognition that there's still a long way to go. Yeah, I think your book does a really good job of pointing out some of the issues that South Africa still needs to overcome, while at the same time keeping a very optimistic message about South Africa itself the progress that it's made, and the opportunity that exists for people that did not exist before. And I really want to kind of come back to that, that there's this yin-yang, that there are still some serious issues that are legacies that exist within South Africa, while at the same time, there's been significant progress, there's a lot of cause for hope. And at the end of the day, I find that the book is very much an optimistic book. It's a hopeful book. It's not pessimistic, unlike a lot of the literature that has been written on South Africa. I think that a good example of this kind of yin-yang is where you talk about this example of a housing community called Atembolatu. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges it faces, the hope that it brings, and just kind of tell the story of this community? Uh, Itembaletu is this community in the municipality of Mahali City. It's between kind of farmland and rural areas and, you know, the big cities. And in many ways, representative of a lot of South Africa and encapsulates lots of the challenges of the country as a whole. And as I mentioned before, one of the ways in which the South African government has tried to cushion the blow of this horrible legacy of inequality 
and that went back to the promises of the Freedom Charter was to deliver housing. And again, I think for a lot of South Africans, they don't even realize how unique the country is in that the government is promising and providing free housing, meaning in the form of title deeds of albeit small, modest homes, but giving a home with a title deed over to its poor citizens. People couldn't believe it when I said, you know, we don't do that in the United States. This is kind of a remarkable feat. But what's frustrating, understandably, for South Africans is there's still so much need. However, as great as it is that a government would give you know, housing to its residents, as is the case with public housing in, in communities around the world, certainly in the United States, sometimes they're not very thoughtfully constructed. Strong and solid communities don't necessarily build from it. But one day when I was in Mahali City, I had been introduced to this woman, really an interesting woman, a white woman whose own land had been occupied by squatters. And yet she had become quite sympathetic to their plight. And she became very involved in the politics of the municipality, was driving around, showing me different parts of the municipality. And she said, you should check out this neighborhood that's been really successful called Itembaletu. And I said, you know, I've only been here for, I think at that point, a few weeks. I hadn't heard of it. So we drove out to this place. And in some ways, it's a little bit hidden from the highway. You have to go down a, a bit of a dusty road to get there. And it's in this more rural part of Mahali City called Moldersdrift. And as I write, it's what I think of as one of the nicest and most successful public housing developments that I've seen in the country. It feels secure. People have really beautified their homes. There are like 120 of these homes. The streets are clean. People are walking outside quite happy, feeling secure. And I had the opportunity to interview a man named Malefe Salibo, who is now a local counselor, but he helped lead this organization that helped bring this community to fruition. Now, the hard part of all this is how long it took and how hard he had to work. He was once a hairdresser and was kind of a very involved hairdresser, knew lots of people. People began to see him as a leader. And frankly, as early as 1994, he somehow recognized that it would be a good idea for a community to try and purchase its own land in order to take advantage of the public housing project that were beginning to be on offer and promised by the ANC government. So he formed an organization and members, basically poor Black South Africans, whose ability to own a home or to live somewhere stable was very tenuous because most people in the rural area were farm workers. And if they lost their job, they lost their home and their homes were not any great shakes to begin with, contributed small amounts of money. And they sought to buy a piece of land. And the thing about this municipality where I focused my study, Mahali City, which was centered in Krugersdorp, was very much dominated by Afrikaners of the kind who really supported the apartheid project were quite conservative. And for them, the transformation of 1994 was not a welcome one. For them, they really saw this as kind of the beginning of the end and were doing all that they could to preserve their way of life. And so as Salibo walked me through the story, he just described time after time how white landowners use their connections within the South African government 
And now this was already the government of Mandela, but as you can imagine, much of the bureaucracy was still you know, a holdover of you know, the white Afrikaners who were in power. They knew the rules in places like what became a Holly city in this area. They were still making lots of decisions, not necessarily following things to the spirit of the transformation, trying to stall progress on these black would-be homeowners who wanted to buy land from getting the permits they wanted. And they kept outbidding them, whatever land they would buy, they would go to the seller and say, wait, you can't sell to these black guys. Let us purchase it. So this organization kept finding itself at court in various sorts of battles until they finally you know, figured out a way to secure the land that they needed to get the permits that they needed. And then in 2014, eventually over 120 houses were built on this land and the people who had contributed along the way got to live in them. And, you know, I conducted a survey in Mahali City Municipality and in this area. And I found that overall their rates of trust the way in which they participated as citizens, their overall satisfaction with democracy was just substantially higher among these Tembaletu residents than elsewhere and even higher rates of employment. You know, it's impossible. Any of my political scientist colleagues, if I tried to make any cause and effect conclusions from this story, you know, would tell me that I'm full of baloney. And that would be fair because you know, there may be all sorts of reasons. Who were the people that were willing to contribute? They may have been different at the start and who carried the way all the way through this. So we, we can't say that this project caused these better outcomes in some way that's generalizable. But again, like much of the book, I think it's a reminder of what's possible because people talk about RDP housing and public housing and redevelopment as universally failed, as impossible. And You know, this community, although one lesson is, boy, they had to work ridiculously hard to get what seemed quite reasonable to build a community of simple houses and live in a neighborhood. You know, we know in the United States, this notion of nimbyism, right, not in my backyard, prevails all over the place when it comes to public housing, that relatively well-to-do white people are not so keen to be generous about having lower income residents nearby. But in this particular case, it really ended up being associated with an improvement in quality of life and seeing that it is possible through various forms of public-private partnerships in a strong community to build a better life for people who otherwise would be living in quite destitute conditions. Well, I think their experience mirrors a lot of the work of people like Robert Putnam and even de Tocqueville on social capital. I mean, this isn't a new concept. The idea that if People live in a community that ties itself together and builds upon each other and establishes networks of trust that people are able to accomplish more than they can individually. I mean, that's the old concept in social science and even before social science, to be honest, that we've seen come true again and again. And it's a key building block to democracy. And it's interesting because the community itself feels like that's what South Africa needs to take the next leap in terms of its democracy, is more communities like those. And the thing that was striking was the fact that some of the obstacles they were facing weren't even from the state itself, but from the community. The idea that they're getting in the way of free enterprise even. Somebody wanted to sell them land and other neighbors get in the way of allowing them to buy the land. 
And it happened more than once. And it just really surprised me. And the other thing that surprised me was the fact that when you talk to the local newspaper, that they didn't even realize that this community existed. There was only one reporter that was a black African that even remembered. The white members on the newspaper didn't even know about it. That shocked me. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, I think that on this point, one of the lessons of the book that, you know, for lots of people, someone might say, tell me something I didn't know, but it was a stark reminder for me was the extent to which people tend to focus only on the bad news. And particularly newspapers, radio stations, journalists, those who are our information brokers, is that no one reports on all the planes that landed safely or the projects that worked as planned, but they certainly like to highlight for you the things that didn't go right. And I talk about that from the beginning of the book with the election. Everyone focused on one little incident of malfeasance in the election, you know, that may have been associated with a handful of votes. Everyone around the country knew this one anecdote as if that was evidence that things had gone wrong with the election. And when it comes to public housing or public policy, absolutely the, the South African media institutions do a good job of being watchdogs when things go wrong. And oftentimes the government is, in fact, responsive to those. But some of that needs to be balanced with remembering and appreciating what goes right. And this was a, an example, a really important one, of the idea of a community building itself up, working hard, contributing, you know, really creating what, as you mentioned, that kind of social capital. They would make some binding agreements that they wouldn't just go and sell the houses. They wouldn't build extra shacks that would look ugly and change the character of the neighborhood they were trying to build. You know, they really did it and did it the way in which social scientists might sit down and say, this is how you should do it. You know, they went and did it. And that's kind of amazing because, you know, we don't see that as often as we'd like. At the very least, we don't hear about it. So to me, it was striking that this wasn't more prominent. And again, I think for some people, they'd say, ah, you know, I don't know how impressed I should be by this one example. It's not so many people. There are all these other things that have gone wrong. But again, when you hear people talk in such disparaging tones that everything is broken, that nothing is possible, you need to ask yourself, is that right? And when you look around, the answer is no, that there are these examples where things do go right, where people work together and create a neighborhood or a community for themselves in which they can be prosperous and build better lives. And that's really what the Democratic Project is all about. So as we look to wrap up, one of the other things in the book that you're really focused on, one of the, I don't want to say themes, but an event that was really at the center of the book, at the center of the study, was the 2019 election. And elections say a lot about politics, but they also say a lot about communities. They say a lot about society. They say a lot about the health of democracy. So I'd like to just kind of open up to you to see what the 2019 election told you about the state of South African democracy. Great. Yeah, I, I do spend a lot of time on that election, starting in Mahali City at the time in which voter registration was going on. It was in the kind of last stages of voter registration in the January before the May 2019 election. So I think of the election as being those five months. So the campaign and the election, this was really the 25th anniversary of Mandela's election. And I think it provided an opportunity for us to think about 
the issues that you and I have been talking about and that face South African society. And the first that was clear is how frustrated so many different actors within South African society are. An election campaign is an opportunity for people to talk about what is not going right. And that's quite reasonable because all of us, as well off as any of us might be, and as great government services as I might have here where I live in Brookline, Massachusetts, we're all interested in a better life. But these were pretty deep-seated frustrations about lack of jobs, inequality, corruption, ineptitude in government real concerns. So I think it revealed that because you heard it from so many different voices. But I think that it really revealed that South Africa is functioning as a democracy, as the democracy it was designed to be. The processes worked. They have these institutions. So this was for the national and provincial elections. And so they're run in terms of proportional representation. You have these parties that are really offering distinctive platforms that people could describe. If you asked your average South African, oh, what's the difference between party A and party B? I think they could tell you. They really came to understand what their choices were. And it wasn't just about people or personalities. This was an election about ideas. The parties represented actual ideas, and people had lots of opportunities to register. Not everyone did. I mean, there was a lot of disappointment with the fact that rates of voting and of registration have gone down over time. And understandably, that is frustrating, and that is not a positive sign. But the institutions were there. The election itself was really free and fair. So all that, I think, tells us that democracy, at least the basic institutions of leadership selection were very much intact. And I think the results in this case, the fact that the ANC, despite all of the critiques of what was going on with Cyril Ramaphosa at the helm, still, although barely won a majority, and that the population, that the citizenry didn't go in droves to a populist party on the extreme left or extreme right, that they were still kind of willing to find a more centrist solution to the challenges that the country faces and not yet make a radical departure, to me suggested that although there's a lot of bluster about frustration with the country, that to a degree, they still want to stay the course a little bit longer and see how well the ANC can do. So, you know, that may be reading a lot into different results, and maybe it's reading into it in a way that accords with the narrative of my book. But Clearly, what we're seeing is South Africa's democracy becoming more competitive, that the ANC itself, which took the mantle of being the Liberation Party, the party of Nelson Mandela, has not you know, worked to the satisfaction of all voters. So other important political voices and other parties have gained strength. You know, that poses certain challenges, but ultimately, I think it's a good thing that there is this competition. Competition is what keeps democracies accountable and afloat. At times, it can be fierce, and we don't know what the future will bring. But to me, that 2019 election, and frankly, the local election that followed a few years later, suggests that South Africa's democracy is successful, it's vibrant, um, and it offers a lot of potential, both for people in that country and for people around the world to think about this really challenging, but best of all alternative solution to how we govern ourselves. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Evan was really impressed with the book that you wrote, Until We Have Won Our Liberty, South Africa After Apartheid. But I was also impressed with the recent article that you wrote in the Journal of Democracy 
South Africa's resilient democracy. And as we kind of talked, especially with the comments that you just had, that it really emphasizes the fact that South Africa truly does have a resilient democracy to this day. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. It was great to chat with you today. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.